I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom Yulesman. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 19th, 2019. Coming up, we'll discuss the upcoming climate talks and what's at stake with three experts, research scientist Gillian Bowser of Colorado State University, PhD candidate Tashiana Osborne of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and my co-host Tom Nielsman. He's covered climate and climate science for several decades. We'll skip news headlines today so we can dive deeply into the upcoming climate talks in Madrid and the broader context and challenges of climate change. Next month, many nations' leaders and others will meet in Madrid for the so-called COP25 Climate Change Summit. Its goal is to reduce emissions of planet-warming gases. The climate talks stem from the 2015 Paris Agreement, which essentially is a mix of pledges from about 200 nations to dramatically cut their greenhouse gas emissions. These are voluntary vows. The countries are not legally bound to meet their targets, but they're supposed to report their progress to the United Nations. Under the Obama administration, the U.S. vowed to reduce emissions by about 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. But earlier this month, the Trump administration announced that it will begin to formally withdraw the U.S. from the International Accord. The move, which had long been expected, is the first step in a year-long process to leave the landmark agreement. So the stakes are very high heading into the conference, while expectations and hope are in short supply. Today we'll discuss what the climate talks and related events might look like. We'll also examine what's at stake for the planet and what influence youth and some adults are having and can have in the absence of U.S. federal support. So first, in the studio we have Gillian Bowser. She's a research scientist at Colorado State University who has studied international climate and biodiversity conventions and has attended several climate summits, I believe. Gillian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's actually been 10 climate summits since Holy Copenhagen. Moly. And also joining us via phone is Tashiana Osborne. She's a PhD candidate at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, affiliated with the University of Colorado, San Diego. She'll attend the upcoming Climate Summit in Madrid. Welcome to How on Earth, Tashiana. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. And then Tom Mulesman, thanks so much for joining the conversation to add your expertise and insights as a science journalist and CU journalism professor who's covered climate since the 1980s, I think since before Jim Henson even testified before the Senate. That's right. And uh, you're welcome. I'm really happy to be here. Great. So I want to start with you, Tom. First, since you have covered, you write a blog for Discover Magazine, Imagio, you've covered climate for so long. What, where do we stand now as we head into these talks, which begin, I think, December 2nd, in terms of CO2 emissions, trajectories? Yeah. Well, uh, for three years, things were looking okay. There wasn't much growth. But then um, uh, global emissions of carbon dioxide actually began to increase in 2018, and quite substantially by 2%. Uh, China leads the way with 27% of the world's emissions, um, and their growth rate is about 1.7%. Next up is us at 15% of the world's emissions, and uh, ours surged 3.4% in 2018, even as a record number of coal plants were retired. You can lay that to a strong economy in cold winter weather. Mm -hmm. And 
As you just alluded to, it looks like the U.S. is hardly a stellar example, not only pulling out of the agreement, but in terms of overall emission boost, right? Um, right. So we've pulled out of the climate agreement. I, we should also you know, note that our um, emissions— Our plan to pull out, we should say. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. true. Um, uh, and I guess we'll see what happens on no- November 20th. I, yes, I should will. also say that actually our emissions are lower today than they were at the peak in 2007 quite a bit. But it's very concerning that it, they have started to go up now. Um, and, and that drop was largely thanks to the shift from coal to natural gas, at least for a while, right? Yeah, there's that. There's also uh, uh, gains in efficiency. Uh, you know, there was for a while gains in efficiency for uh, um, motor vehicles, but those are turning around now. Um, people are preferring larger, uh, larger vehicles. Um, and um, I should also say that investment in greenhouse gas emissions um, reductions worldwide, actual dollar outlays, have fallen. What do you mean investments in greenhouse gas how much money reductions? The, yeah, how much money is being invested in things like renewable energy um, and spending on solutions like renewable energy were basically outweighed by investments in new investments in fossil fuels uh, and other dirty industries. So that's not a good sign. Mm. So Gillian Bowser of Colorado State University, by the way, thanks for braving the traffic, both of you. Sounds like it was horrendous. Um, Give us a snapshot, if you will, of the historical context of COP25. And for the record, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, right? What does that mean? So COP25 is an interesting one in that there are a bunch of actions that are moving forward, and they're moving forward at a sort of similar rate. So this is called the the um, enabling COP. This is actually a, a COP of where things start to move. So last year in Poland, in Karavice, that was sort of to set the framework and to agree on the final framework. And this year, what we have to actually do is start the action. So for us, it's really important to think about that action despite these changes of that, and we are now implementing pieces. And when you say action, sort of what's the end game and what's the most that could be expected of this meeting, this summit, as it were? Yeah, this is, this COP is more of a COP of, you know, moving forward step by step. That's what I mean by action. So we've now agreed on some of the processes, and the question becomes how do we move each processes forward? So getting, you know, putting the final dots in the I's and the crosses on the T's, the countries have their commitments set up, and now the idea is to move towards the next step. Great. Thank you. Um, so, Tashiana, let's bring you into the conversation. Why is attending COP25 important to you? And, uh, by the way, this is your third one, is that right? That's right. It's my third uh, COP. I've attended the last two COPs uh, in Poland last year and in Bonn, Germany, the previous year. And what I found as a student is it's been extremely eye-opening to see how science can be used to help inform policy decisions but at the same time, a bit frustrating to see how uh, how complicated and slow the process can be, which some of it makes sense. We have a lot of differences from country to country, whether it's cultural or the way that our uh, policy works. But there are a lot of differences and, in some ways, a lot of similarities that we can come together to make these, make these decisions and make these changes happen. Tashiana, what do you plan to do in Madrid? So in Madrid, I'll be talking about some of the research that I do on atmospheric rivers, which are essentially rivers in the sky. They are high water vapor 
rivers that form over the ocean in the lower atmosphere, and they stream in from the Pacific and hit us here in California. And we find that they contribute up to half of our water resources each year. They also affect other regions of the world. So I'll be in part talking a bit about why it's important to focus on these types of extremes and how they might be changing in a changing climate, and then also focusing on one of the sustainable development goals. There are 17 of these goals that have been laid out by the United Nations, and they're essentially goals to work towards transforming our world, and they combine social justice and environmental and climate justice issues to work toward these goals. So the goal that I'm focusing on is called Zero Hunger, and we will be looking at different composting efforts on campuses across the United States. So it's a really collaborative effort, and it'll send an important message that although we might not have the national leadership in these areas, we have these uh, campus-level, citywide, statewide initiatives that are still working towards a lot of these goals. Yeah, fascinating. So it sounds like separate from the negotiations track, there's a heck of a lot that's going on on the civil society track and these other peripheral spaces that actually aren't just symbolic and a cool way to talk about what people are doing, but can and do have action plans themselves, whether it's universities or cities or states. Is that right, Tashiana? Exactly. Um, There are a lot of Uh, cities that have their own climate action plans and the University of California for all 10 campuses, they have a climate action plan. So there are these action plans, but one of the big problems is that we oftentimes don't have the financial backing uh, to support these goals and working towards them. And then also that it's not always written into kind of the bureaucratic process to be able to really build a structure to support these goals. And Gillian, I wanted you to chime in too, since you're at Colorado State University, you may not be working directly with sustainability and sustainable development goals there on campus, but given your involvement so broadly in bringing youth to the table and campuses, what's your take on this? And how hopeful are you in terms of what can be done even outside of, in this case, federal Support. Well, well, I think this goes back to this being sort of what they call one of the action cops. You know, the Sustainable Development Goals are a framework that sit across the, the world in terms of different actions. And as Tashiana really well said, is both bringing in the social justice with the climate issues. So our goal as a university is making sure all of our youth leaders are actually trained on how to, develop, to address each one of these Sustainable Development Goals. So Tasha is part of a class, so there are actually several classes that all work together online, and all the students going, there are over, I think there are close to 100 students that are going from these classes that from are working, all around the country, right? All around the country with our partners, Michigan Tech University, um, Clark University, um, Scripps Institute, and others. And the idea is to get the students engaged and give them the, the tools to be engaged as to what does it mean to actually look at these sustainable development goals and be in the same step as the U.N., 
So I see a lot of energy and enthusiasm at the levels that you're talking about uh, among young people um, and a real desire to make a difference. On the other hand, we are constantly confronted with depressing news. Um, we had uh, you know, talked about some depressing news just a few moments ago. How do you kind of deal with that with the young people? How do you keep them engaged and motivated to keep going? Well, I think that's you know the, the beauty of the sustainable goals, and as and like for example, Tashiana's group of looking at zero hunger and then bringing in composting, something they, they can all do on their own campus. And I think that action is really important. So the sustainable goals gives has targets, and each one of those targets has a piece that's kind of chewable. Whether it's you know promoting a pollinator garden, whether it's doing composting on campus, whether it's looking at recycling. So we're trying to give these students a tool to be part of the global conversation, even if it's on their own campus in your own backyard, and that's what brings the action forward, grassroots level up. So it's really important for everybody to have a role that they think they can do, personal action, as well as youth action, to get towards these larger youth climate marches that are just so amazing and so invigorating. And I was going to say, maybe the flip side of Tom's question is, in fact, we're seeing huge momentum from youth. Obviously, Greta Thunberg and Shutiskat Martinez, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, of Earth Guardians, and so many others where the adults in the room aren't doing a hell of a lot. And, and youth, under 20 and well over 20, are doing quite a bit. And um, I feel ashamed about that on the one hand. It's like, as Greta said before the UN, shame on you for being the adults in the room and doing nothing or not enough. Uh, Tashiana Osborne, uh, I want to ask you, I mean, here you are, what, age 27? Yes. Rather young, I would say. (laughs) And a PhD candidate and seem, uh, in a sense, a poster child of this recent young momentum. What's your take as one who's not only going to the talks and has been involved and, and are a research scientist? So I think, first of all, that these youth leaders are incredible, and I'm really inspired by them, Um, Greta, the Earth Guardians, and Little Miss Flint, who's looking at some of the water problems in Flint, Michigan. But what they're really trying to do, what they're really intending, is for this to be a call to action for the adults. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible the amount of attention that they've drawn to these issues. And so I think a lot of us are grateful to them for that. At the same time, uh, what they're really asking is for the adults and the people who are in positions of power and well-established in their careers where they're able to take risks, including researchers who can advocate for change, that they do something about these issues that we're seeing in a, in a changing climate. And so... All of us who are over voting age, one thing that we can do is use our voice through our vote. And it doesn't mean we all need to be, you know, experts in every area of the climate change problem. Now there are so many resources out there to become informed, whether it's a video form or reading something. And so I think it's more of a a call to action for all of us who can do something through using our voice, using our vote, and working together to to make these changes happen. That's powerful. A lot to uh, chew on there. So I'm going to take a little station break for those who are joining us late. You're listening to KGNU's Science Show, and we're discussing the promises and challenges of the upcoming climate talks, their implications. 
and so forth with our guest Gillian Bowser of Colorado State University. She's a research scientist there who's worked a lot on uh, on the COP talks and governance and climate science and all. And then Tashiana Osborne of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She's a PhD candidate there and science journalist and my co-host Tom Yulsman, who's also been, well, covering climate for, for many years. How about, actually, I want to say Tom is... I mean, I remember a few years ago having in the studio Peter Tan of NOAA, who's covered climate science, I mean, is a climate scientist and has been in charge of the CO2 measuring globally. And he was saying this was at a time when cities like Boulder and Fort Collins were taking on their climate action plans. He's like, that's great symbolically. We can all do something. We all should do something, whether it's individuals, neighbors, cities, but it's not making a dent in the global trajectory of CO2 emissions. Granted, that was many years ago. I think actually California, Colorado, so many states are doing more. Do you know or do you have a sense as to, it's kind of a dichotomy, you know, in the absence of federal movement, in fact, rollbacks from the federal side, are we seeing, or is it too soon to see some positive impact on CO2 emissions from cities and states, both in the U.S. and, and other countries? I don't have figures for you on, say, carbon emissions uh, in California, um, but the uh, you know the leading role is being played now more at the local and the, the state level, as you alluded to. And you know the the issue here is is you know we're 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 talking about an issue uh, um, that human beings have never confronted for, and in some ways we're not really um, well adapted to deal with. We're well adapted to deal with you know immediate threats to us and our, our families and our communities, but this mm. is a you know a hundred year even a millennial scale. Um, uh, you know, kind of threat to the to the planet, and that's something we've never had to think about. So, there, it's to be expected that there's going to be a lot of um, inertia in the system, and to sort of get global society off the mark to do something about it. it, it it's not surprising that that's been a very challenging, um, uh, you know, that, that that has been very challenging. But as you say, the leadership is coming at that local and state level. On the other hand, not to put too much of a depressing point on it, the <laughs> rate of increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide globally is accelerating. It's not slowing. Um, so we need to speed up. Uh, we need to speed up those mm -hmm. actions. And we have to translate the energy and excitement that we've talked about among young people into, this is my personal opinion, into um, a political action. We need, we need ground up, but we also need political action from the top down if we're going to do something about this. Yeah, and it was last year, right, when climate scientists en masse warned us that We've got, what, 13 years to spare the planet from irreversible and catastrophic, was the word they used, effects of climate change. Uh, sounds like the trajectory you're talking about now. I mean, how to square that? Does it right. look impossible? Or even if it's impossible, I think there is a danger of getting too fixated on a numeric target. Right. And yet not to whitewash it either and keep moving the targets because they're untenable. 
Yeah, I, I mean, again, in my personal opinion, I've had mixed opinions about these actual number targets. In some ways, mm -hmm. they're somewhat arbitrary, uh, and it sets us up for you know feeling kind of depressed, really. I mean, so you know, the the ideal goal, as expressed by uh, scientists and policy makers, is, is to hold. Uh, climate or, or global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. Um, that is not going to happen, probably And we're not. now where? We're at about, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly, something on the order of um, one degree, a little bit more than one degree, yeah? Yeah, Gillian. we're about 1.5 to 1.7, I believe, is the is current right? number. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're a good ways there, and it's it seems you know unrealistic to hold it to 1.5, and so then the question is, will we hold it to two degrees C, which was the initial goal of uh, of the Paris Agreement, um, and that's sort of the critical threshold. What what are your thoughts? Well, twofold. I mean, I think I agree with you that the number is only part of the issue. And again, going back to the sustainable development goals, I think it's important to remember that there's an adaptation strategy as well that needs to be discussed. So along with the report this year um, is the ocean forums and bringing the ocean issues that will be part of this COP and be for the first time a big part of the COP, along with you saw the IPCC reports that came out. I mean, one was the 1.5 report, but there's also a report that came out about the collapse of pollinators, which directly impacts our food supply. So that gets part back into the importance of youth action. But there are lots of different places that we can continue to take action, even if we don't have the emissions under control. Let's get the pollinators under control. Let's get the ocean plastics issues. All these other issues that are actionable, but all will contribute to our planet being adaptable to a changing climate and allowing human society to protect the planet in multiple ways, not just that one number, but in all the things mm. that come together. I'm really glad that you said that word, adaptation. It's a conversation that people seem reluctant to want to have because they feel that it means that we're giving up. Um, but the, the truth is that no matter what we do, there's a large amount of climate change that has already happened and that continuing climate change that's going to come. So we need to be ready for that. Um, so, you know, mentioning adaptation is really important. And I want to turn back to you, Tashiana Osborne. Do you have any particular hope and or expectations going into this Madrid, you know, COP25 in terms of particular countries to look at or pockets of society, like you were mentioning, and this is right smack in your research area as well, that uh, oceans, not just plastic, but sort of oceans are going to be a big track this time. Um, anything in particular that you're looking forward to, you think others should keep watch on, and that maybe gives you particular hope? Yes. So this COP is also being referred to as the blue COP. So we know that oceans are a really important part of the climate change conversation, but they just haven't been well represented in political text. And uh, we also know that the oceans absorb and hold up to 80% of the CO2 that's emitted into the atmosphere by humans. And there are, there are feedbacks that are associated with the ocean that can amplify the impacts of climate change. So one of the big hopes that I and, and many other researchers would hope to see is that the oceans are included in, in the text and in the commitments and goals of each country moving forward. And then second, it's seeing countries take a lead on some of these issues 
it seemed in the last two COPs that Canada seems to step up in some ways and to team up with some of the smaller island developing nations mm. and that type of um, that, that type of teaming up and kind of advocating for one another is what I, I really hope to see more of, and I know most of us would be so happy to see. And that kind of stuff, it may be bilateral or multilateral, but it's not sweeping across all countries. It sounds like there's still plenty of policy and treaties and other actions that can and do take place like this to, to great effect. That's right. Um, so I'll kind of come back full circle, and, and as you're, you know, kind of thinking about the COP, um, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about our prospects for grappling with this problem? I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe we should put it on a, on a one-to-five scale, which is five, we're going to lick this, and one not. Um, uh, Tashiana, you want to take a crack at that first? So I, I like to say, as others have said in recent times that I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> and so as I've been attending these COPs, I've really seen how, you know, first it takes a whole lot to have consensus in the scientific community. And we, we've had that, though, for a long time and now have documents to kind of present it to the policymakers. And even with those documents written clearly, with the impacts laid out clearly, um, for all countries, you know, all types of people, everywhere in the world, we still see this this long um, process in getting some of these changes kind of incorporated into the text, um, political text, to make make things different. And so, it, it's it's frustrating on that side to see the the fact that there is greed and power and money involved as in many things, and, and, and that's what makes me kind of cautiously optimistic. But like I said before, seeing some of these countries coming together and some take the lead and step in where others are not, that's very encouraging. And also to see these more bottom-up approaches is encouraging, but we do need the top-down as well. Thanks. And just in 30 seconds, if you can, um, Gillian Bowser, anything you want to add to that as what you might be hopeful about or not? Sure, I'm really hopeful about the adaptation strategies, seeing the oceans come into the conversation, seeing biodiversity loss and change come into the conversation. And as Tashiana said, see countries coming together. The African Union has really united around gender goals and also around biodiversity loss goals. And I think that's an important piece not to forget in this COP. So that was Gillian Bowser, a research scientist at Colorado State University who has studied international climate and biodiversity conventions, and Tashiana Osborne, a Ph.D. candidate at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. And yours truly, Tom Yulesman. I'm a science journalist and CU journalism professor. Gillian Bowser, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Tashiana Osborne, thank you. Thank you so much. And Tom Yulesman, thanks for hosting and for... Everything. It was, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show is produced by Susan Moran and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom Yulesman. 